in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. We're going to be looking at verses 9 through 12 today. And if you've got one of the black Bibles from the back, that can be found on page 987. All right, chapter 4, starting in verse 9. Now, concerning brotherly love, you have no need for anyone to write to you, for you yourselves have been taught by God to love one another. For that indeed is what you are doing to all the brothers throughout Macedonia. But we urge you, brothers, to do this more and more, and to aspire to live quietly and to mind your own affairs, and to work with your hands as we instructed you, so that you may walk properly before outsiders and be dependent on no one. This is God's word. You may be seated. All right. Well, I want to start uh, with a question and ask you guys to interact a little bit, first with each other and then with me. Um, and so here's the question. What are Christians known for? What are Christians known for? If you went down to the mall or you went uh, to you know, survey people at the place you work or at the gym or wherever and you just ask that question, what are Christians known for? Uh, what are some of the answers you think you'd get back? So that, that's the question. I want you to um, pair up with some folks next to you, folks around you. If you're here by yourself, scoot over and, uh, for just a minute and, and interact with somebody. Um, but ask that question. Just, just give kind of whatever you, the first things come to mind as you ask that question. What are Christians known for? All right? Ready? Go. All right, I'm going to interrupt you. You guys are having too much fun. This is church. You're not supposed to have fun. Knock it off. No, um, so, so shout out to me, those, any brave souls. What were some of the things that you, uh, that you talked about, that you heard? Hypocrisy, okay? Judgmental. Christians are boring. Good. 0 for 3. What was this? Christians go to church. Okay, that's true. What would you say? Works. They're known for their work. Okay. That they need a crutch, they said down here. What else? From the back. Christians are known for being forgiving. Oh, wow. Good. They're politics. Okay. Yeah. For evangelizing or proselytizing or. 
you know. Is that, is that usually a good or bad? So a lot of times it's like, you're shoving this down my throat. You know, Tebow, we get it. We've heard you love Jesus. Just try to complete a pass, that kind of thing. Anything else? They're perfection, or they're kind of high, assuming they're perfect. We go on and on, right? One that we didn't mention was kind of homophobia, talked about politics, talked about all sorts of other things, right? Most of the things mentioned here were not good, right? I mean, forgiving, that was nice. I hope we are known for that. I'm not sure we are. I hope so. But, but I, think, I think you guys are right. You're tapping into something that there it tends to be this sense, at least in our culture, among uh, what you might call outsiders, those who are outside the church, outside the faith, that if, as they look at Christians, we're not known for a lot of great stuff. And, and I think you could say some of that's because of, uh, you know, in the media, you tend to, you know, emphasize the bad stories, not the good ones, right? So when people are really generous, you don't hear about that as much as when, you know, a, a preacher really blows it in some big public way, right? Um, that, that's part of it. But, but part of it is Christians are hypocritical, judgmental, think they're perfect, and too involved in politics, and I, don't, I mean, right? I mean there, there's a lot of truth to the things that you said. What should we be known for? Love. That's exactly right. There's a songwriter I, I, I really appreciate named Derek Webb. I especially like his early stuff, and he has a song called T-Shirts, and he says, they'll know us by the T-Shirts we wear. They'll know us by the way we point and stare at anyone whose sin looks worse than ours who cannot hide the scars of the curse that we all bear. He says, they'll know us by the billboards that we make, turning God's word into cheap cliches. Uh, and he and quotes, what part of murder don't you understand? You know those billboards that say that kind of thing? He says, but we hate our fellow man, and we point a finger at his grave. He says, they'll know us by the reasons we divide and how we can't seem to unify, because we got to sing songs a certain style. Or we'll rock right out that aisle and just leave you all behind. And then his chorus is, when love, love, love is what we should be known for. Love, love, love. That is what followers of Jesus should be known for. That's what we're going to see in this passage is that the love that we have um, for one another and for those around us says something. It communicates something. And this was one of the main ideas that Jesus had. We should be known by love. And this is especially important as we think about this idea that we're in of Advent. We've been studying through this book of 1 Thessalonians and asking this question, how do we live in light of Jesus coming? In light of the the coming of Jesus, if we knew he was coming back on December 25th, how would that shape how we live? And one thing for sure that it should shape is our love. So we're building this anticipation in this Advent. We're uh, gaining, uh, gaining just more and more excitement. The trees each week will get more and more decorated. We'll light another candle. And then finally on that Christmas Eve service, we'll, uh, we'll be you know, filled with anticipation rather than sick of Christmas and glad it's over. Um, let me just mention something about the Christmas Eve service uh, for a minute since I brought it up. Is, uh, I want to just re- encourage you uh, with what Mark had said uh, during announcements is that we really uh, prayerfully uh, tried to be strategic about doing a third service for Christmas Eve. As we kind of ran numbers and stuff, uh, since the, the, most of the kids will be in here with us, which will be really fun. Um, we'll have ch- child care for kids uh, two and younger, but all the other kids we want in here, and we're going to have kind of a, a special 
special story time with Pastor Luke. It'll be fun. Um, and we're going to have a special gift for the kids. It, it really, it will be a good time. Um, but um, I'm like, Matthew, you're the seven-year-old. Maybe you should do the lesson. He's like, no, you, you do it. So, um, but it's going to be a good time. And as we sort of ran all that, we basically realized, you know what, we could probably, uh, you know, a few p- people leave town and some stuff like that. But for the most part, Christmas and Easter are the times when everyone who calls the church home come. And we felt like if everybody who calls this church home came, we'd be packed for two services, which would leave no room for you to invite friends or guests or out-of-town family or any of that stuff. And so we said, you know what, we need to do a third service because we want to have people get to hear and this time of year when they are open, uh, people that would normally never go to church would come on a Christmas Eve if you invited them, and we want to share the gospel with them and, and uh, with each other. And so I would encourage you uh, with these cards to be thinking about who you can invite, who might the Lord lay on your heart. Uh, we've also put a thing on Facebook uh, for, with the church. If, you're, if you follow Redemption Gateway on Facebook, there's a, a, an event there that you can forward on to some friends uh, that way and some other things as well. But I would encourage you to do that. Um, One of the things that I hope that people experience when they come on Christmas Eve, and I think they will, is love. Is love. They should see that we, as a people of God, love each other. And not just see that from the front or from the songs or we sing about love, but but from the interaction and the encouragement and the way that they um, get greeted in the lobby and just the informal kind of, hey, I don't think I've met you before. How, How are you? Let me get to know you. All that kind of stuff communicates something about love. And that's what Paul here is encouraging these Thessalonians uh, to do, is to love. This section of scripture, uh, if you go in your Bible there, look at chapter 4, verse 1, is really where this kind of idea began. Um, And he said this, uh, remember the first three chapters had been just sort of encouragement and remembering and you guys are great and I miss you and all that kind of stuff. And then some instruction begins really in chapter 4. In uh, chapter 4, verse 1, he says this, finally, brothers... We ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus that as you received from us how you ought to walk and to please God, just as you are doing, that you do so more and more. Paul's saying, listen, you guys are doing great. You're walking with the Lord. You're not being hypocritical. Your walk matches your talk. And I just want to encourage you, keep it up. Keep going. And so the passage we looked at last week, these first few verses here, was he's saying, remember that God's desire for you is your sanctification or your holiness. That just means the idea that you become increasingly devoted to the interests of God. That's what those words mean. And he said, that's what this is about. I want you to remember that. And then right out of that, he then says in verse 9, now concerning brotherly love. It's interesting that these two ideas are together, isn't it? Holiness and love, right? When we think about holiness or when someone says, what do you think, you're holier than thou? What are they typically saying? Saying you're a person that's kind of defined your life by the do's and don'ts. Don't drink, don't smoke, don't watch R-rated movies, don't, 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 don't. Like that's what a lot of people think holiness is. You avoid sin. And for sure, holiness is avoiding sin, not that uh, drinking or smoking or watching rated R movies are inherently more sinful than anything else. But that is holiness. But listen, the other part of holiness is love. It's not, about what you, it's not just about what you don't do. It's about what you do do. Can I just say do-do? <laughs> Christian life's about do-do. 
downhill fast. I started coughing at the first service, so now we're talking about doo-doo. It's what you do-do. And listen, you you like that, Abby? Um, Listen, a holiness that's without love is a sham holiness. You're not really interested in God. You're just interested in sort of building a reputation for yourself at that point. And so right out of this discussion of holiness flows this idea of love. And here's kind of the big idea for today. And we'll look at, at, at this kind of in three parts. The big idea is that we should love one another by being diligent and content so that Jesus' name would be honored among outsiders. We should love one another by being diligent and content so that Jesus' name would be honored among outsiders. We should love each other. That's the first part. Love one another. That's what we see in verse 9. Now concerning brotherly love, the Greek word there is Philadelphia, right? The city of brotherly love, Philadelphia. Now concerning brotherly love, you have no need for anyone to write to you, for you yourselves have been taught by God to love one another. This love is, is the idea of a family love, seeing yourself as part of a family. And when you become a follower of Jesus, you become a son or a daughter of God. The scripture teaches that God actually adopts you into his family. Uh, there's kind of the idea out there in popular culture that everyone is a child of God. That's not actually what the scripture teaches. The scripture teaches everyone was created by God. Everyone was created by God in his image. But when you... Uh, are given the gift of the Holy Spirit and, and your, your heart for God comes alive as you believe in Jesus, you're adopted into his family. You're no longer an orphan, you're a, you're a son, you're a daughter. That makes us then brothers and sisters. And so there's a love that we're to have with one another. Uh, Paul talks about this in Romans chapter 12, which we'll put on the screen here. He says this, let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil. That means hate, hate what's evil. Of holiness, hold fast to what's good. Love one another with brotherly affection. That's that same same word. Outdo one another in showing honor. Peter talks about this in First Peter one. He says, "Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth, for a sincere brotherly love." Notice that both of these passages we're talking about sincerity, genuineness. Part of true love is that it's authentic. Might be kind of at the root of when we say Christians are known for their hypocrisy. They're not authentic. They try to show one thing on the outside that they're not actually on the inside. Love is to be genuine, a sincere brotherly love. And he says, love one another earnestly from a pure heart. Why? Well, Peter says, since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and abiding word of God. He's saying because you've been given a new life, that's what it is to be born again. That the old person uh, of sin and what the Bible calls the flesh dies with Jesus. And then it just as Jesus is raised to new life, as you put your faith in him, you have new life. And the scripture says if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. And, and Peter's saying since you've been born again, since you've been loved like this, since you've been made new, Love one another earnestly from a pure heart. That's the same idea. And they're doing this well. Brotherly love. He says, you don't have any need for us to even write to you about this. For you yourselves have been taught by God. What does that mean? 
Right? All through the rest of the letter, Paul has said, remember when we told you this? Remember when we taught you that? Now, I want to encourage you with this. And here he says, I don't even need to write this because you've already been taught by God. Well, how? Well, he doesn't say exactly, but I, I think it's connected to what Peter said there in 1 Peter 1. When you've been loved by God and you see that God, I mean, just think about John three sixteen, right? This most famous Christian verse. For God so loved the world. Or in this way, God loved the world that he gave his only son. You see inherently in that is that, that love is giving. Love is generous. And when you have God give you his son, not the scraps, not the leftovers, but his best. When you've had God give his best to you, even while you were a sinner and didn't deserve it, when you've had that happen, it only makes sense then that you would love. Right? How can someone who's been loved so deeply and truly then be unloving towards others? doesn't make sense. What is love? What is love? Baby, don't hurt me. Love is unselfish at its root. That's what it is. Right? For God so loved the world that he gave. It's unselfish. It's giving. It's others-oriented. We say this a lot here. The opposite of love is not hate. It's selfishness. When your eyes are just on you, my needs, my concerns, my hurts, my pain, my past, my future, my, 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 my. It's hard to love. It's hard to even notice the needs of other people around. And so love is unselfish, this brotherly love here. And uh, love goes beyond convenience, doesn't it? Right? When you truly love, you don't only love when it's convenient. You love all the time. You give all the time. Because generally what happens is love... Love is needed when? When it's not convenient, right? That's generally the time that it's most needed. Uh, Jesus himself, he said, if you love those who love you, congratulations. Anyone can do that. But if you love when it's hard, if you love when it's costly, if, if you love when someone's not going to love you in return, that's real love. That, that's what you might call covenant love versus consumer love. Or transactional love, right? Con- Sorry, my throat is dry. I'm trying to not cough all over you again. Right? Con- consumer love is I'll love you if or I love you and I expect this in return. And when I don't get this, uh, j- I'll, I'll just shop in another place. That's the idea. When I don't get what I want, I move on. But a covenant love is the idea that I am, I'm going to love you and I'm going to give to you no matter what expecting that I'm not going to get much in return. Moms, this is your life, isn't it? Is love getting nothing in return. That's what it is really to be a parent. I mean, from the very earliest ages, you realize, I'm not getting anything out of this. I mean, it's nice when they cuddle, you know, but then they spit up on you, right? You got to clean it up. I mean, they're just little takers, but what it is to be a parent is you, you love. You don't expect a lot in return. I, again, this is the idea of family. When you're, when you're family like that, you have that expectation. So if we see ourselves as the family of God, if we see ourselves not just as friends or strangers or those people in my group, but we're family. 
That changes things. I was watching a thing yesterday by Tim Keller, who's a pastor and author, and he just wrote a book with his wife called The Meaning of Marriage, and uh, he did a talk at Google. Google will have authors of all different backgrounds and different things come in and do and do kind of book talks, explain kind of what their book's about. And uh, Keller did this, uh, this deal at Google, so he's talking to mostly non-Christians, and he kind of, the first half explains his book and what it's about, and then the second half takes questions and things like that. But he made an incredibly interesting point about this kind of love. He was saying what marital love should be is covenant love, not consumer love. It's forever, it's not transactional. And he said, but here's what happens, and this is very common, uh, is... People will get married, and then the couple will have children, and they'll invest everything into the children, and, and expecting that the child gets nothing in ret- isn't going to give anything in return, right? You, you just, you love the kid because they're your kid, and you just pour and pour and pour and pour and pour. And 18 or 20 years later, the kid moves out, and the marriage is broken. There isn't a whole lot of love there anymore. Some of you know people like that. Some of you are in that situation. Some of you if there's not a change of course or headed in that situation. And he, he makes an interesting explanation for why. He says what happens is with a child, because you don't expect anything in return, you just give and you give and you give, and that's what true love is, and therefore, at the end of 20 years, you still love your kid. Right? No one at the end of 20 years goes, I just am not feeling that I love you anymore, son. I mean, you get frustrated, right? And there's things where you go, oh, I want to pull up my hair. But, but your love for them doesn't, you're not even questioning it. But what happens, Keller says, I think this is right. He says in marriage, you, you, expect, you, you take on a transactional perspective. I'll love you, but I expect this in return. And so when you hurt me in this way, I'll withhold some things from you. And then... It's kind of this cycle of hurt and revenge, hurt and revenge, hurt and revenge. And he says at the end then, you have people that go, you know, I just don't feel in love with you anymore. And it's because you viewed it not as true love, but as transactional love. And we're called as followers of Christ to love unselfishly, to love beyond convenience, to love as family. That's what we are, brotherly love. And notice verse 10, they're doing a good job of it. He says, for that indeed is what you are doing to all the brothers throughout Macedonia. So their love has gone all throughout the region. People are hearing about it, uh, probably through some financial generosity to those other churches. He says, but we urge you, brothers, to do this more and more. That's what I want to say to us here is the family of God here at Redemption Church Gateway. Is I would say that for the most part, we are a very loving church. I hope that's true. I hope that's not just me seeing what I want to see. Um, but as I just look around and as I experience uh, the relationships here and, and as we have new people kind of come and say, uh, here's my feedback, a lot of times what we'll hear, not every time, but a lot of times what we'll hear is, man, that's a loving place. Those are loving people. And so I want to encourage you in this is to go, let's, let's do that more. Let's be even more loving. And as I, just, as, I, as I just know so many of you, I know that this church is filled with people that if there's any kind of need, if there's any kind of opportunity to help, there's a, there's a rush to help. It's not a, well, I guess I will if I have to. There's a, there's a desire there. And what that tells me is that there's a lot of you here that are Christians. 
Therefore, you love. Therefore, you serve. Therefore, you give. Therefore, you help. Therefore, you encourage. But he says, do so more and more. When I get here uh, on, on Sunday mornings, I usually get here about 7.15, sometimes 7.30. And there's a dozen people, at least here, that have been here for an hour. And they've been setting up stuff, and they've been cleaning up stuff, and they've been getting out donuts and coffee and all these things, and working on sound, and getting the computer stuff right, and, and all these things, right? We thought that when you moved into a building, you didn't have any more setup. Ha! You just have it all week. And, and, and many of you do that, and it's cold, and it's early, but you do it because you, you love the Lord, and you love serving people, and you want, when you come here, for it to be a great experience. So, so many of you, you serve kids, not because you just feel so called to, you know, shepherd three-year-olds, but because you know you can love them, and it loves their parents, and that's a good thing. And so we should do that, and, and this is saying, do that more and more. One thing I want to say as well is, if you're serving a lot here, and you're loving a lot here, and you're pouring a lot here, but you're not with your family, stop doing it here. All right? Cheat the church. Don't cheat your family. Let your ministry to other people be out of the overflow of the ministry that you're doing at home and the love that's there. But here's what he's saying, do so more and more. And I just want to encourage us that this is a loving place, and it needs to be even more. You can't have enough. You can't have enough love and care and concern. So we're to love one another. Then an interesting turn here. Love one another by being diligent and content. Hmm. Love one another by being diligent and content. What, what are we talking about? Okay, look at verse 11. Before this, he said, do this more and more, and aspire to live quietly, and to mind your own affairs, and to work with your hands as we instructed you. He's saying part of your love is going to be a diligent and a content life of work. You know, what? This doesn't, on the surface, make exact sense. What's going on here? Be diligent and content. Well, there's some background that I guess we need to understand here. Is it seems like for this church at Thessalonica, one of the issues where they struggled a little bit is that they tended to be idle. They tended to be maybe a bit lazy. Uh, in 2 Thessalonians 3, it talks about that they were busybodies. Let's actually look at that for a minute. He says, uh, this is the, ne- the follow-up letter to this one. They apparently didn't get it the first time. He says, for even when we were with you, We would give you this command. If anyone is not willing to work, let him not eat. For we hear that some among you walk in idleness, not busy at work, but busy bodies. Now such persons we command and encourage in the Lord Jesus Christ to do their work quietly and earn their own living. Who are you saying? Saying some of you become a real load. And it's loving for the church to, to care for people in need, but, but you're not even trying. Like, you, you, listen, if you're not willing to work, you can't eat. So, so something has gone on here in Thessalonica, and we're not exactly sure why. Uh, perhaps they got caught up in the Occupy Thessalonica movement, or I don't know exactly what. But they're out there, and, and they're busybodies in everyone else's business, in everyone else's thing. And not diligent. Now the issue here isn't about employment, okay? The issue is about effort. 
right? So, so when he's saying you walk in idleness, when he's saying here, uh, work with your hands, he's saying, get after it, work hard. Now, this is especially important right now because some of you, you are unemployed and you would love to be employed. You would love to go to work tomorrow. You would love to do that. You've been looking for months, maybe even over a year for that. And, the, and I, I can just imagine how hard that has got to be. And you see those things, and this, this is happening more and more and more. Here's the encouragement to this. Keep working hard at finding work. That's what it's about. Keep working hard at it. If you need help, for sure, ask for it. But, but don't, don't be one of the 300,000 people that I heard this week that basically just gave up the look for work, right? That's why the unemployment number went down so much is because so many people just quit looking. Don't be one of those people. Keep after it. Keep going. Keep working. The opposite of this is this idleness. It's not busy at work. It's busy bodies. It's, as he says here in verse 11, aspire to live quietly, mind your own business. So this apparently seems to be like you're all in, a, in everyone else's business instead of just focusing on what God's called you to do. And this is connected to how we love. Now, I want to share with you, I was convicted by a little piece um, online this, uh, a couple weeks ago um, by a gal named Trisha Wilkerson about this idea of are you an internet busybody? Oh, I'm not, I'm not like up in everyone else's business. I do my thing. I just, I just stay focused. Oh, yeah? Well, what about online? Here's what she writes. She goes, I certainly never thought that I was a gossipy, idle, lazy, or randomly wandering about my day looking for someone or something to scratch an itch in my heart. I hadn't identified much with this particular sin, that's of being a busybody, until God gently revealed the Internet is my town to meander. I found myself going from house to house or website to website seeking something. Information, book reviews, blogs, Facebook, email, all sucking my time and seducing my attention. To ignore this comparison is, for me, choosing blindness. Blindness to the fact that I'm tempted to neglect the people and gifts God has called me to pay attention to. See, that's the issue, right? If, if you're being a busybody, whether that's in a small town or in the place you work or on the line, you're neglecting the people and gifts God's called you to pay attention to, and therefore you're being unloving. And I'm convicted about this as I think about how easy it is to just spend time meandering online, right? I mean, what do we call it? Internet surfing. Just, just surfing, right? Where are you looking for? I don't know. What are you going? I don't know. I'm just going. Right? And we can justify it, right? Like, like for me, in my, my industry, right, is ministry and pastors, and so there's lots of blogs and websites and things, and I can go, oh, I'm doing research. You know, I'm continual learning, right? And it can be that, or it can be kind of like, oh, that guy got fired from that church? Oh, that's interesting. And it can be real, like, gossipy. Right? You have your industry, right? You, you have those same things. Um, you know, maybe, maybe for you it's, it's keeping up with all the latest deals and the latest places and the latest thing and the latest kind of industry tech gossip. And, and if you're not careful, what you find is that this tends to be a huge distraction from work. I don't have the stats on it with me, but people would say overwhelmingly in the last 10 years, the, the number of unproductive hours spent at work has gone huge because of our time being internet busybodies. And then we have Facebook, right? 
I mean, this is what it is, right? I, I was, there's a gal on our softball team who was saying, I joined Facebook and I spent three hours online doing it, and I was like, I've got to quit. Like, this is crazy, right? And if you're on Facebook, like, you know that you've had times like that. You know you've had times and you're like, what am I doing, right? And my eyes are like burning out of my socket and I should go to bed and, oh, but look, look at this video of a cat, you know? And it's, <laughs> and we've all done that and we all do that. And there's a place for that. I mean, we, we, we laugh and joke all the, we have all kinds of fun videos we watch around here and. And I, I mean, I get it. There's a place for it. But, but if we're not careful, we'll neglect the people and the gifts God's called us to pay attention to. We'll do that. The alternative here is uh, what's been come known as the Protestant work ethic. It's kind of what has built America, right? The Protestant work ethic. It comes from the idea that, that for Protestants, they knew that, uh, that they got grace from God and that that grace then empowered them to work hard. They didn't have to work hard to get grace from God, but because they already had grace, they could work. And so that, that work ethic has permeated our culture. Paul describes it right here in verse 11. <coughs> this is right where I lost it last time, too. Pray for me. It's uncomfortable to watch someone else cough, so you don't want that. Verse 11, he says, uh, aspire to live quietly. That, that phrase literally means Strive to not strive. Think about that for a minute. Right? There's this, there's this striving for data and information and gossip and da-da-da-da-da. He's saying, just strive to not be interested in that. Live quietly. Aspire to live quietly. And then the next one, mind your own beeswax. Right? Just, just keep your head down. Do your thing. Mind your business. Mind your own affairs. And then work with your hands. Here he's not saying that if you have a desk job, you're, you, know, you need to repent. <laughs> Whew, that's good. But, but, but get after it. There's an activity here that he's calling us to. Now, now here's, what's, here's what's interesting. I don't want you to go to the John Stock quote. Uh, how is this connected to love? Right? Because that's what's going on here. He's going, love one another, and then there's all this work talk. How does this fit? Well, well, commentator John Stott says this. He says, it's an expression of love to support others who are in need, but it's also an expression of love to support ourselves so as not to need to be supported by others. You get that? So he's saying there's times where, you know, you're in need, and, and the, the body of Christ is to come alongside you and to help you and to support you. And we do that here. We've got, uh, that, that's one of the main things communities do as they meet, is, and they provide meals and encouragement and support, and they do that. We do that, by the way, for people outside of our church. There's some families uh, that are connected with people in our community, our redemption community, that don't go to our church at all, and we're bringing meals to them and serving them. That's, that's good to do. But he's saying if... If this sort of constant neediness is not being addressed with hard work, you're being selfish, right? It's, it's again, the opposite of love isn't hate, it's selfishness. And one of the forms that selfishness takes is saying, I'm just going to be lazy and expect everyone else to pick, pick me up. I'm saying that's a, that's a problem. And it seems like that's what's going on here. It stopped looking, stopped working, stopped caring. Stopped seeing themselves as servants. 
Right? These are the two identities that come out of this passage. We have to see ourselves as family, love one another, brotherly love, and as servants, which means I always get after it. I always work even when I don't expect much in return. What's the result? Love one another with diligence and contentment so that Jesus' name is honored among outsiders. That's what verse 12 is. Look at verse 12. Why do all this, Paul? What's the big deal? Why does this matter? So that you may walk properly before outsiders and be dependent on no one. He's saying, listen, when you, when you live this life of laziness and gossipy and slander and in each other's business all the time, when you do that, it doesn't look to outsiders like what you really care about is love. It looks like you care about selfishness. This does not bring honor to Jesus. You're constantly, uh, you're constantly a leech on everybody else. That's not loving people. And so we need to live in a way that we would honor Jesus' name among outsiders. That's what he's saying. See, our love for one another, the way we conduct ourselves, is an argument, a, a good argument for the validity of the gospel. When people come to you and they say, I think, you know, I've always thought that Christians uh, were hypocritical and judgmental and too into politics, and, but, but you know what? You're different. You actually love i gotta, I got to reconsider some things. That's a powerful argument for the goodness of God, the truth of Jesus Christ. May we be people who provide that kind of argument by the way we love. Jesus said that the way we live should give glory to God. He says this in Matthew 5. He says, you are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. I'm not talking about America there. <laughs> Can we be clear on that? America's not the city set on a hill. The church is. The people of God are to be a city set on a hill. Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who's in heaven. What's the light that we shine? Is it that we're right about everything and everyone else is wrong? No, it's good works. Let everyone see your good works so that they may give who glory? Him. Right, if we're doing this to, so that we can receive glory, no, that's not what it's about. It's for him. And then John 13, Jesus taught this very thing. He said, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. Think about that for a moment. How has Jesus loved you? selflessly, way beyond convenience, as a servant, the point of death, right? He's saying love one another that way. And in fact, that's what you need if you're going to love people. Because if you're loving people and you don't have some other outside resource to provide you what you need, you are gonna, your love is going to dry up. There's another point that Tim Keller made in that talk on marriage. He, he was talking about this idea of unconditional love. And, and he said the only place that you get it is if you can get it from an outside source. He compared it to philanthropy. So if you're going to be a, a big philanthropist, like um, I was watching Oklahoma State play last night. The, their stadium is T. Boone Pickens Stadium. Right? This guy who's 
Got a lot of money, right? So the stadium gets named after him, right? The only reason he can be philanthropic like that, kind of this over and above thing, is because he has this huge pile of money that came from another source, namely oil. Right? If I want to be philanthropic, I can maybe, you know, buy a brick on the way up to the stadium, right? But I can't get a stadium because I don't have this huge oil, right? I don't have this unending source of money coming, right? And so in order to be constantly generous with love, constantly giving, constantly pouring yourself out, which is what's required if you're going to have a spouse or kids or any kind of meaningful relationship, the only way that can happen is if you have a huge flood of love coming into you from an outside place. Do you know of a place like that where you could get that much love? Jesus, as I have loved you, how has he loved us? He's loved us at our worst. He's loved us when we don't deserve it. He's loved us when we didn't acknowledge it or give thanks for it. And he just keeps loving and loving and loving. If we will lean into him, not into our pride that says, I'm a loving person, but into him that says, I'm not loving, and Jesus, you've loved me at my worst. Help me to love that way. If we will do that, then we can give and give and give. Then we can work hard. Then we can pour ourselves out for those who need it. Love one another diligently, contently, so that Jesus could be made much of. And that's what Jesus finished with. If you look back at verse 35 of John 13, he said, By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. That'll show the world. Let's pray. Lord, uh, we thank you so much that you have given us love in Jesus. It's an inexhaustible source. More than we uh, could ask. And so God, we praise you and we thank you for Jesus, for Jesus giving himself on the cross. And we pray that we could be people who as we trust in him and as we lean into him, that we could then give ourselves and our time and an encouraging word and our treasure and our abilities, that we could just pour that out for each other so that the world would know that you are good. God, we praise you and we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.